Are you hesitating to take the next step in your e-commerce journey? Founder Plus has you covered with proven frameworks tailored to your business needs for fast results, a supportive community of over 30,000 like-minded entrepreneurs and weekly live mentorship sessions. Founder Plus is your key to success. Try Founder Plus today for just $1 for seven days and start building your dream business with confidence. You can visit founder.com forward slash start dollar trial or click the link in the description to claim your trial. This is episode number 83 with Tim Fargo of the Founder Podcast. What you need is thirst. You need to be a thirsty human. Who is intent on learning. It's a really fascinating fascinating exploration of human potential. Now. 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 The Founder Podcast. Even the greatest entrepreneurs had help. If you want to learn from the most successful founders on the planet, you are in the right place. Branson, Mark Cuban, Tony Robbins, Tim Ferriss, Ariana Huffington, Steve Case, Gary V, Sophia Amorosa, Barbara Corcoran, Damon John. Learn from the greatest minds in business today with interviews hosted by Nathan Chan. This is not your average entrepreneur podcast. The Founder Podcast. Hey guys, thank you so much for tuning in. Before we start today's episode, I just want to let you know that our goal at Founder is to help entrepreneurs succeed however we can by giving away high quality content in the form of interviews, blog posts, podcasts, YouTube videos, you name it. We put out so much content to help you. And another interesting project that we're working on right now is partnering with world-class founders like Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills like negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free trainings with founders like this, which is 100% free, just go to founder.com forward slash free. Okay, so now let's talk about today's episode. What up, founders, startup entrepreneurs, and business owners? My name is Nathan Chan, and I'm your host coming to you live from Melbourne, Australia. This is the Founder Podcast. I had to break up that intro because it didn't feel right, but I had to say it this way because I'm batching all of these intros to every single podcast interview because I'm just about to go overseas soon to the Philippines, uh, which is really, really exciting. I'm going to take a little bit of a holiday, some much-needed r and I've been working so ridiculously hard, and uh, yeah, I'm going to do a talk there as well, and yeah, I'm really, really excited. Anyways, about today's guest, his name is Tim Fargo, and he is the founder of Tweet Jukebox. And in this interview, he shares with us how he sold his last company for over $20 million, the process that he went through to sell that company, why he sold it, how companies are valued, and we really go in depth around a lot of things that I've never spoke about on any episodes before. And this is an amazing conversation with Tim. He was very, very open. He even talks about how one of his first businesses it actually collapsed and how he went bankrupt and the things you need to avoid as a young and early stage startup founder to make sure that you don't fall into the same traps as he did. I know you guys are going to get a lot of value from this episode. So yeah, look, that's it from me. 
I hope you have a great day. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this interview and I will speak to you soon. Now let's jump into the show. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Uh, we've had this one scheduled in for some time now. Uh, so yeah, welcome. Nathan, thanks so much for having me on. I really, really appreciate it. I'm uh, I'm a fan of your work, so it's great to be here. Well, thank you so much. Uh, the honor is all mine. And uh, I guess the first question I'd, I'd like to ask you uh, that we ask everyone that comes on is, how did you get your job? Well, the job I have now is it's a complete accident. Tweet Jukebox, which is my tweetjukebox.com, which is my business, it started out, I had a book I was trying to sell starting in July 2013. I came out with an Amazon ebook. And I learned what a lot of people learn when they come out with a book. Nobody cares because there's just so much, there's so much stuff out there, right? Mm. Um, so I was trying to find a way to give myself some visibility and my preferred channel after poking around a bit, was Twitter. And what I quickly found was that I could get attention and I could draw people to what I was doing. The problem was there was a lot of work involved in, even if you scheduled stuff in advance, it was still an upload, it was still managing content in a series of spreadsheets. And from my perspective, that was kind of a waste of time. So Anyhow, fast forward, I contacted a friend of mine. I'm like, this is ridiculous. There's got to be a better way. And I, because I had a business previously um, and I have a little bit of money to do something like this, I said, look, I really need an app to help me out because I can't be wasting my time worrying about this kind of clerical stuff. And it's, you know, it seems ripe for automation. So we automated it for me. And then people started asking me about it. And after a roughly a year of using it and it'll be actually a year next month that we rolled it out and let people start signing up for it and then in November we actually started the paid model so I didn't even really know like what would happen with it when we pushed it out you know there's part of you that thinks wow this could be really great and another part it's like nobody's going to care nobody's going to be interested but we've signed up 26,000 active users now. Yeah, um, so yeah, so it's been, you know, it's been a, you know, a, a great 11 months. You know, I don't, I'm not, I'm not really big on like saying, Hey, we're going to crush it. You know, I'm, I'm happy <laughs> every time we get, I'm happy every time we get a new person and every time we try, try to help solve somebody's problem. And, you know, I have my own particular aspirations for this particular business. So, um, but that's how I got the job I got now. Awesome. And I know that uh, you exited on, I don't know if it was your first business, but can you tell us about other businesses that you've launched and startups you've done? Well, you know, I kind of bounced around when I was younger and then I'd had a business that was doing okay. <laughs> but the problem was, this is when I was um, 29 and my ego was a lot bigger than the quality of my business. So I managed to go personally bankrupt running an event marketing business in Florida. And I actually filed for bankruptcy in California. I, I kind of moved, I guess I was licking my wounds or something. And it was a great cautionary tale for me, like I say, because you know the business was profitable, it was making money, but I just thought way more of myself than my income would have been indicating. And, you know, the math didn't add up and it caught up to me. So 
you know, if you, if you fast forward a, a few years from then, I sort of took the lessons from that and I ended up in the insurance investigation business, um, which I started in 96. And that was a business. It, it's interesting because, you know, there's this always this big argument about, you know, do you follow your passion or do you follow something where there's good economics? And I don't have a necessarily a passion for investigations, but it was certainly a business that was well positioned to have a business person come in because it was a very, it's kind of, there was a lot of mom and pop kind of operations in the private investigative business Mm -hmm. and for insurance companies. So I started that business in 96 in an extra bedroom and then I sold it um, not quite seven years later for 20 million to uh, a public company in, in, in the same city I was in actually. And that, I mean, it was a, it was a great kind of alchemy of, I mean, a lot of what I learned by going broke um, really helped me out because, you know, just managing the cash flow of the business and keeping a real close eye on everything, which previously I probably wouldn't have done. So that was, I mean, that was kind of, yeah, that was, well, I mean, I would have kept an eye on it, but not in the way, I guess having a bit of a sales background or upbringing or whatever you want to call it, you know, is always this kind of like, I'll land another deal, you know, we'll grow our way out of it. And I'm much more fiscally prudent now than I was back then Hmm. and certainly was during the course of running Omega, which was the business I sold. Yeah. Okay. I see. And, you know, you talked about, you said some like key lessons when you had to go bankrupt. Like, can you take me back? Cause I'm, I'm really curious. Like you said that you guys were profitable, but you know, you, and I don't need to mean to be rude, but you said you had a really big ego and, and maybe like, you know, a bit blindsided because of your ego, you know, what, what exactly happened? Like, um, if you were profitable, like, like how did you, how did you, you know, fall into all this debt that you had to file for bankruptcy? Young guy chasing girls, landing decent deals, spending the money before it hit the bank. And I think that's, you know, like you get a nice client, right? So you mm. go out and you land, you know, you land a book of business. So let's say it's a, a $25,000 deal or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'd land something like that. And in, like my mindset today would be when you've collected the money, then you know you got it. Until then, it's all speculation. Mm. My mentality back then was, hey, man, I just scored a great deal. Let's party. <laughs> and, um, you know, and that, I mean, you do that enough times and I kept thinking that I'd managed to, to weave my way out of it. And, you know, I was trying to be, I mean, I, I was really trying to be a big shot, you know, and if I'd just been a bit more reserved, I probably would have weathered the storm, but I was a little busy kind of believing my own press releases. Mm. If you know what I mean. Yeah. Okay. I see. I see. And like, that is, that is like a, uh, something that happens to a lot of young people. And sometimes, um, you know, you have to, I guess, keep yourself in check. You know, what, what advice would you have to people to keep themselves in check once you get, you know, these wins and you, you start building this momentum and, and, you know, everyone starts to tell you you're so good and, and like, you know, you, you're landing these big deals, but then at the same time, you've got big overheads or, you know, you're spending, you know, you're spending just as much because you, that, that, that does sound like a familiar kind of narrative. Well, you know, I actually, I was just, 
I was on um, Angel List, Angel.co or whatever it is, kind of mm. that angel funding site. And I was looking around at some different companies and I was reading a founder's bio and he said, failure is my bitch. <laughs> and I thought, <laughs> I thought, dude, you are so setting yourself up for exactly what I did. <laughs> because, and, and I really, I mean, I, that, that probably, I mean, I can identify with that remark because I think that's a little bit what I thought. Mm. And, you know, probably I would say something that I have kind of adopted as a little bit of a mindset is that things are never probably as bad as you think. And, and equally, things are probably never as great. Like when you, you know, when you kind of go through these up and down cycles, like when you're euphoric, it's probably not as like remarkably awesome as you imagine it. Yeah, you landed a deal and that's great, but there's a lot of work to do. I mean, in, in, you know, in the event marketing business, getting a sale, like signing a deal basically just means somebody's contracted you to do a lot of work for them. Mm. It's not, you know, it, it's not, it's not a software business where it's like, Hey, well, we've already written all that. So, you know, now there's nothing to do. I mean, that's the beginning of a process. So getting excited about it was kind of dumb and equally, you know, I'd say you can kind of, you know, air the other way when people have a little bit of failure and like, Oh, this will never work. But, you know, it's usually neither the high nor the low are as, you know, you can't, spend a lot of time extrapolating downward or upward off a particular peak. It's like, try to keep it, you know, if we're talking about the advice, I'd say, you know, try not to overshoot downward or upward, you know, what you feel like is going on with your business, because you're going to have highs, but you know, they're not guaranteed to last, you know, you still got to work for it. Right. And just Mm. because you've had a little bit of bad luck, doesn't mean that's going to last either. I mean, you need to take the feedback loop off your bad luck or whatever you want to call it and use that for something. But, you know, you don't need to like grind yourself into dust over it and say, oh, I'll never be able to make this work. Because that's, I think that's the other place people kind of like loop out is they get a little bit of too many times negative feedback. And then they, they also, they kind of implode in a different way. Mm, yeah, no, I agree. And you you've come out uh, the other end of it, and you've you've really, you know, grown from that adversity. I have to touch on this a little more because I'm just really curious because I don't think I've ever spoken to someone that's had to file for bankruptcy. So I find this whole concept fascinating. Just just around the fact that I guess you know your debts get waived, but I'd imagine there'd be a great deal of. And I hope you don't mind. Are you open to talking about this a little more? Yeah, sure, man. Go for it. No problem. Um, like, you know, just in like society, that is, that is like, I think, you know, people listening to this as entrepreneurs, I think that, that is for, for anyone, that is like what we're all scared of, you know, f- having no money left and having to file for bankruptcy. That is almost to the point where people could call that the ultimate failure. You know, how, how are you feeling at the time? Did that cause a lot of shame? And, and like, because uh, I know in, in America, this is something culturally that's quite accepted and stuff. So, yeah, I'm really curious. Like, how, what were you feeling at the time? And, and t- take us back to that moment where you had to actually file. You know, I think, I think being in the courthouse when you have to kind of present the judge with your list of assets and your list of debts, because that's what makes it real. Up until then, it's, it's kind of conceptual. I mean, of course you're embarrassed, but it's not like you have to wear, you know, you don't have to wear a sign or be like in the (laughs) stockade in the town square or anything. Um, Mm. so it's not, it's not necessarily apparent to everyone what's happening to you, but when you go into this courtroom and 
you know, I've described it as being, and I don't know if you have the, like, if you have these kind of talk shows in Australia, but, you know, like this kind of Star Wars cafe kind of situation where there's a lot of people in there and you're going, you know, mm. you might have thought it was really cute, but look at your, look at your, um, <laughs> kind of your colleagues or your kind of equals today. You know, um, mm. cause th- these are the people that you're, you know, kind of equivalent to right now. So, yeah, I mean, it, it was, I mean, there's the sort of shame of doing it. And then, you know, you kind of add on to that. I mean, in the States, yeah, it's great. You get your debts waived, but you also have, I mean, you've got a pretty big road to hoe, a pretty big process to go through to rebuild your credit and, you know, <laughs> Telling banks that you filed bankruptcy is like you know not necessarily a great way to get a date um, with your banker. <laughs> um, hey, by the way, I don't pay people back. How's it going? So, yeah, I mean, it was you know it felt it felt pretty awful. It's a long time ago now. I mean, you know, it was ninety one, so it's a, it's a fair bit in the past. But but it was pretty gut wrenching at the time. But you know, you can do two things with moments like that. I mean, you can look at it and and decide that this is your identity or you can look at it as an event that can mark a turning point and i chose the latter mm, so what like what about friends and family did you keep it to yourself or just um no i was open about it i've never been i guess i just don't operate in that kind of wavelength of i mean i didn't you know it wasn't like i boasted about it obviously but i didn't hide it either Mm. So what happened next, you know, because um, you said you, is that immediately you started your next company or, or what happened next? Did you have to get a job? Like what, tell, tell me what happened next. Well, what I, <laughs> what I thought was going to happen is that I was going to be, become an academic. And so, you know, I kind of, you know, put things in place where I thought, okay, you know, that, that was a mistake, but now I'll find something that's a little more stable I had pretty good grades in university, so I was like, okay, I'll get a PhD and then in consumer psychology, and then um, you know I'll use that to be an academic and, and live a nice kind of stable life. But after a fairly brief period of time working as a PhD student, the workload is insane. <laughs> and, and honestly, I mean, I say this as an entrepreneur. I went to my doctoral advisor after six months, and I said, Chris... If I work this hard in the private sector, I, w- I won't need to worry about being tenured. I'll be rich. I'll, I'll be, you know, I mean, and I was, I was wrong by like six months. And it was honestly it was going and starting a business and all the other things that went, I mean, for me, and, and maybe only for me, but for me, it was easier than this process of just getting buried in paperwork and, and reading assignments and, uh Anyhow, yeah, I thought I was going to be an academic, but that didn't happen. So I left and I ended up going into business with a couple other guys that I knew in the investigation business. And this kind of led to my business, obviously. And I, when I started with them, it was a six person business. And I was like, okay, I was going yeah, to be wow. their systems. Yeah, I was going to be their systems and finance guy. So, you know, I'd left this doctoral program to do that. So I go to work there, and like I say, I mean, I've kind of got a little bit of an IT background, mostly finance, and um, not not very good at it, though, apparently, because I filed bankruptcy. But anyway, 
so we start growing really fast and in fairly short order, the org chart starts to change. So I went from being IT and finance to IT finance and operations, and then IT finance operations and sales. And so, you know, after about a year, there wasn't a lot of the org chart that wasn't under me. And that was fine with me, but I wanted to be comped for it, you know, both in terms of shares, which I had some, but not a lot. Um, hmm. And my pay was was not particularly great. So, you know, we, we danced around with this for a bit. And then I finally just said, you know, this is ridiculous. I mean, I'm doing the work. And I, I mean, I would have been fine with making an arrangement with them, but they wouldn't budge at all. So I ended up leaving and starting Omega, which is the company I ended up selling. So that's I mean, that's kind of the transition. I filed bankruptcy. Um, I tried to be a doctoral student. I worked with some friends, now not friends. Um, <laughs> you know, but it happened. I mean, I, I tried to make it, you know, amicable by, you know, like like just negotiating, but they just didn't. They didn't want to hear about it. So, mm, okay, interesting. And uh, you know, you, you you said you started working on Omega. Like, what what caused that rapid growth? Um, what you know, to sell your business for twenty million, were you looking to sell, or this public company approached you? How did that all come about? Well, the growth, I mean, was pretty deliberate. Actually, you know, borrowing a little bit from an interview of yours I just listened to um, with Daryl that you used to work with at Intrepid, um, mm-hmm. and he was talking about you know growth. Growth is a great aphrodisiac for a business because people are you know interested in that. I mean, nobody wants to go work at Hank's Plumbing that's had seven people working there for the last 20 years. It's like, you know, where you sit and have to wait for somebody to like, finally decide they want to do something else if you want to get promoted. Um, you know, growth is, is great because it, it shows people that there's something happening and that there's possibilities for advancement. So that was part of it. And over time, I also thought, you know, if we can have really like high-level growth, then we have an opportunity to, you know, to, I mean, people will pay for that. If you want to have an exit, you know, I'd say the management of the business could be somewhat different than if you just want to steady state it because high growth is is great and we definitely got comped for it. But there's a whole host of issues that pop up when you're trying to go really fast in any business because it's like driving fast. Everything happens really quickly and you've got to be able to react. If you're going slower, um, things are a little bit more easy. But Part of the reason we were able to grow so quickly is, you know, it was, it was mostly mom and pop kind of, you know, 10 person, 15 person investigative firms. And we were seeking from the onset to build a nationwide footprint, which was fairly unique. And we had one really big competitor, but they weren't really known as being particularly adept as an investigative firm, which also helped us because we were very kind of operationally focused on delivering good work product um, from an investigative standpoint. So, you know, if I'm honest, um, you know, the expression in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king, um, (laughs) you know, would pretty much describe me. I mean, I I, I wouldn't say that it was my amazing business acumen. It was just a lot of the people that were in the same business just weren't that kind of sophisticated in operating. So it helped me. You said issues with growth. I'm curious, you know, what issues did you have with, with, with your business growing so fast? Well, because that business, you know, 
unlike let's say like a technology business or a business where you know or like or publishing which is kind of your business mm. um, where there's a lot of leveraging of an existing platform across a broader audience in you know for Omega Insurance Services which was my business I mean to to generate revenue required people you know you needed to to bill time you needed more investigators so I mean, probably the biggest bottleneck was was getting enough investigators quickly enough and training them, you know, because it's not only a matter of just putting people in a slot. It's a matter of putting someone in a position that can deliver a quality work product for your client. So, I mean, we went into psychometric testing. We did all kinds of like pretty brutal interviewing techniques like you do a ride along on an investigation and we would deliberately like leave the air conditioning off when it was 35 degrees out um, <laughs> Celsius just to see if people really wanted the job because what you don't want is you didn't want someone a lot of people think they want to be an investigator right they think oh my god it'll be so cool yeah um, I reckon it'd be so much fun and and there are parts of it that are remarkably fun, but there's a lot of it that's just sitting around waiting in a really uncomfortable car. So it's getting people in tune with that. So, I mean, that's one, probably the biggest bottleneck was that. And then you add to that because we never took any funding. So cash flow management was also pretty huge because we grew receivables really fast, right? Mm. But you know, receivables are awesome once you've collected them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, Let's talk about banked. Let's talk about, you know, book, like not booked. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, you know, I mean, so that was another thing was keeping keeping that because you're, you know, your work in process is always people who were getting paid, you know, every couple of weeks, right? So you needed to keep the cash flow moving to be able to accommodate that. So, that was probably the other like really sticky piece of the business is really staying on top of collections because towards the time, I mean, when I was selling, we had over $2 million in receivables. Um, you know, and it's just a lot of stuff to collect and insurance companies aren't necessarily known for being hyper fast payers, but a lot of little things like that. And I guess to me, building a business like that that's growing really quick and has a lot of moving parts is like trying to like race around a track and you know like you know like changing the windshield washers while you're going 200 miles an hour or something it's like it's crazy some of the stuff and i mean what we typically did was we'd grow like say by 50% and we'd have like we'd get a lot of new sales we get a lot of new accounts and you know, let's say we'd gone from a million um, or two million to say a run rate of three. Mm-hmm. We'd kind of slow down just a little bit to kind of get our feet under us again, mm-hmm. because at least for me, there'd be times where we had so many new people in the field doing investigations, you know, just new workers in the company that it just felt like we just had a lot of people that had no idea what was going on. So every now and then we had to kind of pull the throttle back, but we still grew. I mean, we went from nothing. It, we we sold for a one-time multiple revenue, so we were we were at a twenty million run rate when we sold. Um, yeah, wow. Yeah. Anyhow, the, I mean, people-based business. I mean, the, the biggest constraint is just getting bodies in the door and making sure that they're good at what they do. You know, in in a particular case of that business. Yeah. Okay. I see. So, it sounds like you know a lot of people. How many staff did you have? 
I want to say that when we sold, we were probably like 310 to 320, 310 yeah. to 320 people. Yeah, oh, wow. a lot of a lot of people, a lot of people. Yeah, started wow. using name tags because I couldn't remember who everybody was. <laughs> wow, that's crazy. And you know, you said um, you said something that struck me. You said that when you, you know, running a business to sell it as opposed to running it not to sell it is is a totally different kind of, I guess, strategy. Like, did you initially know that you were going to run that business to sell it? I had a pretty strong feeling. Because I saw it as like an opportunity that, you know, I mean, like when you have a window where there aren't a lot of sophisticated operators, I mean, eventually somebody's going to stumble, somebody else is going to stumble into the market too, right? Um, so you don't really want to wait for them to show up. And then also, I mean, I really, you know, I love doing it. I worked with some awesome people. It was great. But I couldn't tell you, like I got up every day and went, oh, man, I can't wait to see what we investigate today. And it was just a business. It was just a business that needed, like, there were certain metrics that need to be met and certain things that need to be done. So, yeah, pretty much from the beginning, I wanted to, I wanted to get rid of it. When it comes to, I guess, operating the business, do you run it from, I guess, when you, you know, you're on a high growth trajectory, do you run it from just a break even? Like you, you look like if you if you're breaking even, that's good. And then you just keep hiring more people and try and you know just try and grow as fast as possible in terms of a cash flow perspective. Do you run it like look to run it break even, or you know from a financial? I'm just curious. You know what what's what's the thinking there? Well, we were profitable, but I mean we were probably cash flow neutral. I mean we we hired people. Honestly, because we were pretty selective in who we put in the street as investigators, we pretty much hired people as fast as we could find them. My attitude was, if you find somebody you think is going to be good, hire them and we'll figure out the rest later. Because it, the percent of people that you hire relative to the number of people we interviewed was really low. And it's a fairly high turnover business, even when you put a lot of barriers like on the interviewing process. So if we found somebody, we brought them in. So we we kind of grew as fast as the cash flow would allow us to. And we had levers that we would use where, I mean, my my controller used to laugh at me because it was like we'd get the bill from our from our um, like our sell bill, you know, which would say is twenty thousand bucks or something, right? Mm-hmm. And then I would put it on an American Express card on the last day before it was due. Right. And then and then giving us another 30 days. And we did that almost with everything. I yeah. Mean, we wow. would we would dre- like we would try to find every single way we could to stretch terms, not not with our interior people. Of course, they always got paid on time. But anything we could do which wouldn't impact a relationship with a vendor, we would stretch anything we could cash flow wise. So you could grow faster. Right. Well, it's free financing. So, you know, which is nice to find. Yeah, okay, um, interesting. No 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 interest rate and no equity partners. <laughs> okay. Awesome. Um well look, uh one last question on that business cuz I find this stuff really really interesting um and and I've never really talked to anybody that like in depth about this stuff is uh when it uh came a time to sell, were you actively looking for buyers or they came to you or you just you, you kind of touched on this, but you said like you guys were like the number two and you kind of people, you had people knocking on your door and, and you were just waiting for the right offer? No, we went to market. 
Yeah, I, I hired um, a good friend of mine who's David Burns, who's a great investment banker, um, and he had just left with a another guy, Tom Carty, and and they'd started a kind of a boutique investment bank, which they've both gone on to other things now. But we hired them, and then it was actually pretty funny because you're trying to keep information from a group of people who are inherently curious, right? Because it's mm. an investigative firm. But we set up like a war room on a floor of the building where we didn't have any offices because we had offices on the top floor on the seventh floor. We had offices in on the first floor. So on the second floor, we took a series of like executive suites and we we put all the due diligence documents and and we used the conference room there to meet with potential buyers and stuff. But there was a lot of slinking down stairways and everything to meet with people. It was <laughs> it was pretty cloak and dagger. But we did keep it a secret up until we closed, so it was good. Yeah, okay. And how long did that process take? Probably about six months that felt about like six years. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> well, there's so many things like, you know, I mean, first you're meeting – I mean, you meet with, a, you know, we met with some people that were, um, you know, more private equity kind of people and, you know, the multiples there weren't great, you know, so we were getting, you know, we were getting a fair bit of interest in that way. And then finally, we had somebody that came in that was interested as a strategic buyer who made a, who's the one who bought us that made a really nice offer. We were actually kind of blown away. And then you're just worried like that you're going to scuttle the deal somehow, right? I mean, you've kind of, you've agreed on terms. It's a pretty good deal. And you're nervous that people are going to find out. I mean, there's a million things like, at least for me, there's a lot of the, like, what could go wrong. <laughs> so from, from the time that due diligence started by the actual buyer, there was just a lot of worrying and wondering. And, you know, and then our lawyer, something I would tell anybody who's listening that if you get into a situation where you're selling, be very explicit with your lawyer not to fight with the other party. <laughs> it, it sounds like the most commonsensical thing of of all, hmm. but I mean, these guys got in a fight over like a semicolon or something, and I'm just like, dude, this is like <laughs> the rest of my life and my family and my kids and like you know the future of this business. Can you like kind of take your head out of it and you know just like let's keep moving the boat forward? But anyhow, so I mean, we obviously made it through, but it was it was definitely interesting, and I and I think the other thing that I would tell people because we we looked at like a level down, like we looked at kind of business brokers, and you know, sorry to offend anyone, but you know, we found those people to be kind of like failed real estate agents or something. Um, <laughs> okay. No, really. I mean, we we met with people, and I'm talking to them, and I'm talking about the business, and it's clear to me. I mean, not that I'm you know, sort of Jack Welsh from GE or something. But I mean, these people just didn't understand business at all. And they're talking about, oh, yeah, we're going to go out and we're going to sell it. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I thought, no, you're not, man. You're not. I mean, finding the right representation in terms of an investment bank, if you're, you know, if you're big enough, even to find somebody who's in like a smaller boutique where the fee will be interesting enough to, to get a senior person to work on it. Mm. That's really important. Like a lot of people go, Oh, we'll get Goldman Sachs. I got news for you. (laughs) (laughs) Unless you got a pretty massive deal like Zuckerberg, you know, those guys, if you've got it like for my deal for 20 million, I mean, these guys don't get out of bed for that money. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. To be honest. So you're so much better off going with someone smaller 
but don't go with that like lowest level of people who are just like selling, you know, they're selling vending machine <laughs> routes and stuff like that, you know, and they, it, but it's easy to think that that's your, your option. You know, it's mm. hard. It's not like, you know, the big names that you read about in the paper, you know, like, you know, the big investment banks, I mean, they're probably too big unless you have a really like large transaction. But if you go too low, you're going to be misrepresented. You're not going to have, you're not going to get the multiple you should. Um, so you really want to find somebody who's, got the ability to extract the proper value of your business and understands what multiple you really should get for your company. When it comes to multiples, do you do you, do you usually is is a decision made off just what's happened with previous businesses that are sold within industry or it just really depends what both parties think it's worth and a combination of things. I think there's I mean a certain amount of it relates to the business itself, right? Because, I mean, a people-based business, I mean, you've got SaaS businesses like the one I'm running now that routinely sell for 15 times annual run rate. Really? They sell um, 15x? Yep. Crazy. Wow. And it's because it's recurring at, too. Yeah. I mean, if you look at Buffer's multiple, I mean, they raised their most recent capital raise, which was like at the end of last year, I think mm. they raised it like a 65 or 60 or 65 million valuation, mm. which is was roughly 15 times their annual run rate. I mean, but that's a SaaS business in a kind of particular area. So it's it's pretty driven off the industry, but there's also, you know, at a certain level, you get into what the buyer wants you know, if, if it's an ego purchase, you know, if the CEO of the acquiring company really wants it, the multiple mm. can get a little crazy. And then conversely, and this is, you know, for any founders, if you're having difficulty with your business, don't let that be the reason you sell it. Because I can tell you, you will be skinned and filleted, you know. <laughs> yeah, these guys are sharks, eh? You're not going to solve. I mean, nobody wants to buy your set of problems. I mean, and and if they do, they're going to discount it heavily. You know, mm. if you've got issues, you need to sort those out. I mean, it might sound also common sense, but you want to sort out your issues before you go to market because it's the wrong reason to sell. I mean, you need to work through that or find somebody who's going to be kind of an operating partner or whatever that will help you through it. But if you go to market with a business that's struggling, I mean, that's just it's a recipe for disaster in my opinion anyhow. Mm. Yeah, man. Well, look, you shared a ton of gold on this stuff. Um, we'll leave it there, but uh, I want to switch gears and let's talk about tweet jukebox. Like before we work towards wrapping up, like this is your latest business, you know, let's fast forward right to now. You, you've got this epic SaaS business, 25,000 active users. You've just gone into paid. You've, you've got the paid plans. Tell us a little more about how the service works. You, you've talked about Twitter automation. What exactly are we automating? Why are people loving it? Like, yeah, just give like, tell me, man. Basically, it's a, it's a place to keep your content. And the way the system works is you have each jukebox, because you can have many, is a, sort of a repository of your content, right? So let's say, for instance, for you, you could put all your episodes, all your podcast episodes, could be one jukebox, some kind of a tweet highlighting each issue of founder could be another jukebox. Let's say that you really like a particular group of quotes, that could be another jukebox. And then you would set a particular frequency 
for each of these kinds of content. Each jukebox should really be slightly different kind of content. You know, you shouldn't probably mix them up because otherwise, once you set the frequency, you know, maybe you'd get too much repetition of a particular kind. Mm. Um, but people put their content in and then it just runs automatically. You know, the, the thing I'm very fond of saying is, you know, from a, from a, a follower standpoint on Twitter or any other social platform for that matter, nobody cares how the content got there. Nobody. Nobody cares if it was delivered on a white stallion with a pillow and a guy had written it on a clay, on a granite tablet and then, you know, copied that into Twitter. Nobody cares how it got there. They only care if it's relevant to them, if there's information that's interesting or that they'd like to share. So to me, that's the ultimate reason to put this stuff into automation as well as, and I get a big kick out of, uh, you know, there's a lot of talk about the best time to tweet, Mm. which I actually think is hilarious. It sort of presupposes that Twitter is a little bit like if you've seen these like circus films or, you know, or actually been to a circus where there's a person who does the high dive, they like climb this really tall ladder or whatever. And then they dive into a really small thing of water. People act like that's how Twitter is. Like everyone's waiting for you to leave the platform and see what's going to happen. Right. And it's not like that, you know, and I mean, the best time to tweet generally just has a relationship to where the majority of your audience is geographically. So frankly, I mean, the way those, the the way the algorithm, those, most of those reports run off of only thing it tells you is what time zone most of your followers are in. doesn't tell you anything else. So, you know, presupposing that because most of them are online, I, I think that's meaningless. I mean, the best time to reach out is when anybody who cares about what you do is paying attention. Anytime. You're not buying a Super Bowl ad. You know, there's no transaction cost. So, you know, put your content out more frequently when people would find it. And actually, someone who you interviewed fairly recently, Guy Kawasaki, is mm. another adherent to the same principle. You know, there's no reason to like, you know, tweet three times a day, you know, thinking a very egocentric thought, which is that like everyone's going to, you know, rush to your Twitter feed and see what you're doing. So the tool, you know, automates that so that you can spend time. I mean, the real beauty of the tool is to take that time to develop better content, either through creation or curation, and then, you know, get the best bang for your social buck by actually engaging with people that reach out to you. And the next iteration for Tweet Jukebox is going to be, you know, we're in the process of becoming Social Jukebox, where we'll start posting to LinkedIn, Facebook, Google+, and, and probably some platforms like Instagram, which I know is near and dear to your heart, and Pinterest and some stuff like that. Yeah, wow. Awesome. That's crazy. And I'm curious also, uh, you know, when it comes to finding your customers for Tweet Jukebox, what has been the most effective way? Like, obviously, has it been Twitter? Yeah. I mean, I think the best place to find people is usually, you know, in the same ecosystem they're going to be in if they're, you know, going to use the tool. I mean, people that are going to be really, like, strong users of Social Jukebox for Facebook are probably going to be best found on Facebook. The people that will be most interested in LinkedIn are probably going to be people that spend a lot of time on LinkedIn, I'm guessing, because that's certainly been our experience with Tweet Jukebox that by doing some stuff, like when people follow me, you know, we have an automated message that like 
share is a link about Tweet Jukebox. We do some thank you tweets for our users that help make the app somewhat viral. And anyhow, we, we, we tr we've tried to have a number of ways in which the content about the system gets shared. And, and the most success, as you rightly pointed out, is, is been on Twitter. Hmm. Interesting. And, you know, once you roll out, uh, you know, I guess, and will you rebrand from, from tweet jukebox to social jukebox? Yeah, that's correct. Yes. So, we'll, you know, we're, we're actually kind of straddling that now we're starting to develop the program, which, you know, we're hoping to have out in the second quarter of this year. And so, yeah, so we're going to switch brands. Cause I mean, we see the same need to me, social media is an awesome, awesome thing. The problem is that like delivering content to all these platforms, it's really, really time consuming. Oh yeah. It's a uh, shit ton of work. Well, and my idea is like for social jukebox, ultimately what I want to do is create something that's a little bit like pocket, but mm. pocket for like pocket for like for social content. So you, you're walking around and something comes through, you see a tweet, you see an update on Facebook and you think, man, that's awesome. And you can just put it into social jukebox and it'll go out to the, whatever channels you, you know, you're set up to, to um, share with. So you don't have to go to each one individually or anything. Yeah. Wow. This sounds amazing. Here's hoping. Awesome. Well, look, um, we have to work towards wrapping up, Tim. It's been an absolute blast chatting with you. Where's the best place people can find you if they want to find out more and, and more about Tweet Jukebox? Well, the best place would be tweetjukebox.com where you can sign up. There's a free version of the service. And if you have questions, people can always reach me at Tim at tweetjukebox.com. I'm always happy. To, and it doesn't have to be a question about the platform. It could be a question just about something we talked about, like selling or running something or whatever, I'm happy to answer. And um, and Twitter, which is probably where I spend most of my time on social, my handle is at Alphabet Success, which is the book that I was trying to sell when I started the whole thing. So, Awesome, awesome. Well, look, um, thank you so much for your time, Tim. Absolute pleasure speaking with you. Yeah, I hope you have a great thank day. Thank you, Nathan. Yeah, you too, man. Thanks. Hey, guys, I hope you enjoyed this interview as you might already know, our mission at Founder is to help tens of millions of people every single week with our content either start or grow their business, which is exactly why we're partnering with world-class founders such as Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills such as negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free exclusive trainings, please go to founder.com forward slash free. These are 100%. We go super in depth on teaching a particular topic, and I know that you're going to love them if you enjoy this podcast. So just go to founder.com forward slash free. All right, guys, I'll see you in the next episode.